This podcast is offered by Jikoji Zen Center on the web at jikoji.org. Our programs are made possible by donations from people like you. There are so many things to talk about in the Dharma. You know, it's endless, boundless. That's why it can't be plumbed. And we just keep coming again and again to ourselves and to our, to our practice and uh, meeting it the best we can and learning continuously what that means about our lives and perhaps something more grand than that. I don't know, but uh, it seems like enough just to try to be present for this one <laughs> uh, without adding much of anything as, as, uh, as sometimes boring as that, as that is. But, um, you know, Buddhism, I'm, I'm talking here about uh, from uh, fascicle 93 of the Shobo Genzo, Dogen's birth and death. And, um, you know, Buddhism, at least Dogen's Zen holds that death is a distinct activity. Birth and death are distinct activities. Um, so, you know, death is not an end of birth or, you know, the trajectory of birth. I mean, I was raised Catholic and the teaching there is you're born in sin, you're probably gonna die in sin and they're intimately interconnected and there's really pretty much a linear trajectory from one to the other. So I once told Darlene Cohen, I thought that Buddhism was a was a, uh, uh, a scary religion. And, and she reminded me that I was raised Catholic. <laughs> and so, you know, that's, that's kind of the nature of what we're doing. We're in the great mystery. We're not in what can be known. So there is a little bit of walking out on the plank in what we, in what we do in studying these things and sitting and being awake and all the ways, calligraphy, all the incredible ways that we, we bring ourselves to practice. And so uh, Dogen, um, you know, teaches that it's, it's, it, it's birth, breath, and death as a, as a cycle, a related cycle, but, um, but it's actually a continuity, I would call it. Birth, breath, and death, a single continuity that plays out in every moment. Birth, bre- breath, death. And Dogen said, you know, never wander far from birth, breath, and death. And I think that's just a profound teaching. If we could just take that as a personal koan and remember uh, again and again and again as we come into each moment, never wander far from birth, breath, and death. I think we would live very differently. Uh, We might even live in our lives a little bit more than we do. Um, So um, literally in our bodily sensate form, we, uh, we experience this. This is not something mystical. Um, At funerals, we have a, a mudra called the fire mudra, birth, breath, death, birth, breath, death around the circle, right? The endless enso. And that is that, and that is our lives. And yet, uh, Dogen says it is a mistake. And this is a quote from the fascicle: "It is a mistake to suppose that birth, 
turns into death. Birth is a phase that is an entire period in itself with its own past and future. For this reason, a Buddha Dharma, in Buddha Dharma, birth is understood as beyond birth. Death is a phase that is an entire period in itself with its own past and future. For this reason, death is understood as beyond death. In birth, there is nothing but birth, and in death, there is nothing but death. Accordingly, when birth comes, face and actualize birth. And with when death comes, face and actualize death. So we can look at death as, as an end of, of our bodily form, uh, as a dropping away of the five skandhas that we spend our lives in form grasping at and calling me. So these skandhas are, uh, I think of them as interrelationships. Um, complex interrelationships between this one and my perceptions, however they are big or small, dark or light, whatever, they are only mine. They, they arise from Beata and they, they create Beata. So it's a self-sustaining Beata that we have here. And so so these five interrelationships that condition and create this one that I call Beata, that you call Beata, uh, are maintained through these interrelationships. Eye and form, ear and sound, nose and smell, tongue and taste, body and touch, mind and mind consciousness. These interrelationships and complex interactions begin to condition us and dance together from the moment of birth. And there's actually science behind that. So within one of the things I love to talk about is, you know, within one hour of birth, one hour, 60 minutes of birth, we prefer mother. The smell of mother. This doesn't even have to be mother. The smell of mother is enough, and the infant turns and roots toward the smell. That's conditioning. So yes, it, it, it supports survival. It is essential to a human being's survival, since of course we come into the world completely without neural development. I mean, virtually without neural development. We don't even fully develop neurologically until we're 24 or 25. So yet, <laughs> within one hour, we are conditioned. We have a preference within one hour of birth and likely well before that, likely in utero. And per Dogen's teaching, if we extend it a little, which we probably shouldn't do, but you know, we do all the time. <laughs> project ourselves onto Dogen. It's one of my favorite Dharma pastimes. Um, you know, if we just extend it a little bit to say that, you know, uh, in utero, we experience sound, um, 
uh, sensation, bodily sensation, form, for all, I mean, I don't know, you know, I, I don't remember, you know, but there is clearly in utero experience and, and it is likely conditioning of us. So by the time Beata is born, she probably has preferences. And that maybe is part of the period, the phase of birth, which as Dogen says is, you know, it, it has its own past, its own future. Living, breathing has its own past, its own future. So this conditioned being, uh, you know, is, uh, I, I, I think this is such a powerful teaching of Uchiyama Roshi, who was a student of um, Soto, uh, Sawaki Roshi. Um, he, Uchiyama says in his book, um, I think it's his book, what did I write? Introdu Instructions to the Cook. He writes, tells a story from his own life. And he says, that's, he said, I might die. I realized I might die. He was a young monk in his 20s. He said, I realized I might die, but that's okay. Because that's just one experience in the life of the self. So this one here, Beata, you know, whatever happens, it's one experience in the life of the self. Just one because this self has its own past and future <laughs> that has nothing to do with Beata. That is be affected by Beata. Beata will always be a part of this karmic stream, but this stream is just part of the Sangha river. It's, it's, uh, uh, it's birth and it's death is, 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 is all in the flow of the Sangha river. So, Yet, it has its own conditioning. And conditioned through these five interrelationships, uh, Beata is defined essentially by what she likes and dislikes. That's what we might call Beata. Because how I am is likely a function of what I think you will approve, what you will be okay with in the, in the construct of what we're doing here together. I probably will push that a little, <laughs> my apologies in advance, but, but to say that, you know, that's kind of how we're wired and um, we're wired to, to interwire and to interwire with our relationships and all the things that we connect and interact with. So, you know, Thich Nhat Hanh refers to this as interbeing, the same framework, interwiring. It's actually neurological. It's not a conceptual thought. It is neurological. It's part of being alive in a human form, which has this neurology that, that attenuates and functions in with, along with those of others, other beings, all kinds of other beings, trees and rocks and pebbles and tiles and art and uh, other humans and dogs and even poodles. So we really wire with others. So this neurology that uh, causes us on the one hand to have the brain has an amazing negativity bias. It leans toward the, the downside, the brain as a bodily organ um, and the familiar, 
So leaning toward the negative and the familiar, um, toward attachment that causes suffering. That's the Buddha's first noble truth. Attachment causes suffering. He didn't say it was bad to be attached. The Buddha did not say, don't be human. Of course we attach. That's, that's part of our physiology, our neurology, our biochemistry. It is not a choice. <laughs> it's very hard to detach. People who try to do it in other kinds of practice, Buddha, spent, Buddha himself spent years trying to do it being an ascetic, trying to detach from the body, from the, from the uh, you know, fallacies of the mind, from this conditioning, from this conditioning that is present within moments of birth, measurable within moments of birth. The Buddha spent years trying to escape that and learned, no. What did he have to do? He had to stop looking and just sit down. And as Jero taught me, shut up. Sit down and shut up and just be there with that question. What is this? Who is this? Why is this? You know, what is this? And that, in a sense, is sort of entering so deeply into the skandhas within oneself that one can begin to discern this conditioning and actually experience it, see it happen. Oh, I see where my thoughts come from. <laughs> I see who makes those things that seem to attack me. <laughs> um, it's it's, it's, it's a, 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 a really incredible thing that, that we can do in Zazen is to just, as the Buddha did, sit in those five skandhas, rather than trying to escape that conditioning, sit right in it. Sit still right in it. Not trying to be Buddha, not trying to be something special that isn't right here, but really just trying to be, not even trying, just being this. And I can't tell you how many hours my teachers were paragons of patience, still are paragons of patience, who were willing to meet me again and again and remind me, just this is enough. This one here is what you can bring into the room. You cannot bring someone else's body to practice. You cannot bring someone else's mind that looks so glorious to you and perfect to you to the Zendo. <laughs> this is the one that you can offer as it is. So not leaning into what we think is good or better all the time, but maybe as Reb would, would, would say, you know, being upright in whatever posture we practice in, being upright and meeting uh, this with this. Um, but because we are so conditioned by the time we're adults, we basically have, my Darlene would say, you have to climb over the mountain of preference to see, you know, what is. 
You have to climb over it. Like there's effort in that. <laughs> Darlene used to talk about doing a preference practice at the ice cream shop in the Russian River. <laughs> in Russian River. And she would go to the ice cream shop and she said, I would close my eyes and I would point and I would move along the counter. And at some point I would say that one. <laughs> and she said that was her preference practice. And then she would get outside with her ice cream cone. She said it was always orange sherbet. <laughs> Not even ice cream. <laughs> and I, I think that's a good practice. I think uh, this, this practice of non-preference in whatever way we can bring it is a very healthy thing to remember that these things that we think we are, we actually think we are them, are really quite ephemeral. They're quite changeable. They can be done without, actually. And this one still walks around and still can see and hear. And there's a, something amazing about that, that when the mountain is seen as what the mountain is, which is just air, just preference, then there's some way that occasionally we can actually see without quite maybe so much effort. So we, we, we seek the good, which is what we like, and we avoid the bad or what we dislike. And frankly, to me, this is a huge underpinning of racism um, for, for us in that we have a ton of associations just right off the bat that we're conditioned to that affect how we look at skin color. What is good? White, white hat, white guy, white person, right? white things, white linen, white, pure, good, holy, white, angels, white, right? Bad, black, dark. So that's a very deep, deeply embedded cultural condition that, that has nothing to do with people, but we project it onto people. We bring our fear to black and brown and dark, and of course different, because remember the neurology prefers the familiar. Um, so, you know, I think that that is just so, such an automatic conditioning that we have that we don't even see it. We don't notice it in ourselves, just this slight turning away from from the black group of people you know just this little flinch and then oh no i'm going over there you know and we can be brave and we can go over there and we can learn and that is the beauty of 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 the mind too that it has this possibility of seeing its habits and then saying yeah no i'm going to do something different from that this time and sometimes we can't see because we are heavily conditioned and, and so uh, we have to then be willing to hear from others because we are born on the wrong side of our eyes. You know, we are born, uh, we cannot see ourselves, but others can give us the gift of, of seeing. So given that we have this neurology and th this tendency to be conditioned uh, by our interactions and these interrelationships with our experience, how do we awaken? And so Dogen has an answer for that. He says in this fascicle, this birth and death is the life of a Buddha. If you try to exclude it, you will lose the life of a Buddha. 
If you cling to it, trying to remain in it, you will lose the life of a Buddha. And what remains will be the mere form of a Buddha. Only when you don't avoid birth and death or long for it, do you enter a Buddha's mind. So where is Buddha? Where do we look when we, when we want to emulate Buddha? Right here at our very own life right now, which is birth and death, which is the life of the Buddha. It is your very life. It is my very life, just as it is. And then Dogen says, however, do not analyze or speak about it. <laughs> Whatever you do, don't think about it. Just set aside your body and mind. Forget about them. So this conditioning, that's what he's talking about. Just set aside your body and mind. This ball of conditioning that you think you are and throw them into the house of the Buddha. I love that. Just throw them. He's not saying leave them outside the door. No. Like we say to people at work, just leave your problems at home, right? No, that's not the way it works. And Dogen knew that. He says, throw them into the house of the Buddha. Make that your offering. Throw them into the house of the Buddha. Then all is done by the Buddha. When you follow this, you are free from birth and death and become a Buddha without effort or scheme. Who then remains in the mind? So this Buddha exists nowhere other than in birth, breath, and death. Those who want to become free from birth and death should understand the meaning of these words. If you search for a Buddha outside of birth and death, it will be like trying to go to the southern country of Yue with your spear heading toward the north, or like trying to see the Big Dipper while you are facing south. You will cause yourself to remain all the more in birth and death and miss the way of emancipation. Just understand that birth and death is itself nirvana. There is nothing such as birth and death to be avoided, and there is nothing such as nirvana to be sought. That's so clear. Only when you realize this are you free from birth and death. So where is Waldo? Where is Buddha? can't just look for the red and white striped shirt. <laughs> you could say everywhere. Uh, and right here. Right here in this moment. It's the only place. So in a sense, we have to stop searching. And that may be the hardest, <laughs> the hardest practice, the most challenging practice of all to the, to the human mind, to be still and just be and stop searching outside for something. Are there any questions or anything you'd like to talk about? Hogan. Okay. Uh, Hi, Beata. Can you, can you hear me? Yes. Wonderful. 
Um, thank you so much. I, I just, I love your way. I, I love how you, um, how you are today. Thank you. And, um, <laughs> and uh, uh, one thing I'd, I'd like your help with is, as I listen to you speak about um, uh, the newborn, uh, a newborn me, who within a moment, um, you say, uh, demonstrates this um, propensity to prefer my mother's smell. This is a lovely example. And um, you referred to this as conditioning. And um, what I'd like help with is that word conditioning uh, for me, I, I see, I certainly um, see that my physical circumstances will um, guide my neurology to be drawn towards certain things and have aversions to certain things. And I see this though is quite distinct uh, or importantly distinct in my own understanding of the world from the kinds of conditioning that arrive to me via the stories that other people tell me, via symbols that have been injected into my mind. And perhaps this distinction that I've been carrying for a long time is not as important as I've thought in the past because I've been really fixated on conditioning. When I, when I use the word conditioning, I often am thinking of a cultural conditioning, the conditioning of the stories, not the conditioning so much of direct experience. Uh, can you help me explore that right now? Because I think I'm, I'm seeing a hint that my distinction between those two things may be holding me back. And I'd just like to hear your, your thoughts. Thank you. So what, what would you, how could you, how would you describe the distinction between them? Hmm. I mean, one I think is based it's... on stories of others, not your own direct experience. That's a distinction. That story yeah. is an experience in and of itself. That, that has a conditioning effect. You're hearing it, ear and sound. And then of course the mind makes meaning. Um, and so there's that piece. Anything yeah. else there? So I think, yeah, help, yeah this, that's a good, good, good way to help me explore it. I think that, um, I think that, uh, the conditioning that arrives in the form of symbolic stories that I hear from other people, maybe I'm reading something, maybe I'm even just looking at a sculpture that someone else made, um, but it carries symbols, cultural symbols. I guess I have the distinct feeling that the neurology that can support that kind of abstract thinking is a pretty new layer upon a whole lot of neurology that did not have the capacity to hang on to and take symbolic things very seriously or, or even notice them. So I guess it's, I guess in a way, as much as I am embarrassed to say it now, I'm seeing that as maybe my distinction between human awareness and non-human awareness. This, and, and, uh, and, and as I say it out loud, I, I realize, I'm all the time trying to dispel that in the way I view the world, the way I look at things, 
but is that human, you know, is that human, is that not human, you know, because I think that that's kind of a dead end. However, I'm finding that I do carry that in, in some part of my, um, in, for example, in how I'm drawing the distinction between con conditioning caused by symbolic language and conditioning caused by direct experience. I'm somehow believing that symbolic language, the arrival of symbolic language, my listening to your words, I, it just has a different value to me. And, um, and it's a bias. You know, that's my own intellectual bias yeah. that, that, I'm, that I'm working with at this moment. Um, I'm wondering what, do you have an intellectual bias uh, that parallels that or that can refute that? Or, you know, what, what, what can you tell me? Well, I'm full of intellectual bias, which is my own, my own mind and mind consciousness that, you know, I think the thing we forget is that consciousness itself is conditioned. So what I am aware of when I put my consciousness someplace is different than what you will be aware of when you put your consciousness in that exact same spot, because our consciousness is conditioned. We share the cultural and symbolic aspects of it. Okay, so, so symbolism means a symbol is the assignment of meaning to something that is essentially neutral. A spiral, a cross, all the things we have symbols for, the moon, the sun, you know, well, moon and sun are, are actually <laughs> observable uh, objects, but but, you know, I think that um, we humans have a great tendency to want to uh, solidify things. And we solidify meaning into symbols. And then we are affected by those symbols. The flag, um, a Trump flag at the, in front of the Capitol will never look the same to any of us, right? We, I mean, we were, con we were conditioned by what we experienced just a couple months ago, you know. So this is a constant ongoing ongoing process. And I'm not sure that it's so separate. I think it sort of all flows in our stream, so to speak. And, um, but I think the effect of meaning and symbol is maybe, is um, we, uh, in America at least, I don't know other cultures so well, but in my culture, I think that we tend to put almost more energy into that, the mental side the thinking process, the meaning we ascribe, and less into putting my hand on the breast sculpture and feeling its smooth coldness and letting that condition my body to what that sculpture is. Right? So I get killed if I did that in certain museums. So <laughs> not advocating that as a thing, perfect thing, but I think, you know, um, we, we do put our attention on consciousness as if it were us and we downplay the sensory things that are very present as well. And we tend to separate them and they're not separate. They're all flowing in the same, you know, in one river. Um, so we also tend to think that we experience them one at a time sequentially. Um, and, you know, I think the jury's out on that. Neuropsychology is barely catching up with the Buddha. Barely catching up with what the Buddha knew 2,600 years ago. 
So, yeah, it's a great uh, deep uh, study that you're in. I like it. I hope to hear more about it. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. For being here. Um, may I ask a question? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the wonderful talk. And my question is somewhat related to what Hogan said. Uh, so before I go into my question, there's just something I'd like to comment about that. Uh, we talked about the distinction between the conditioning, which is uh, coming from the senses and the conditioning, which is not necessarily directly related to the senses. Mm -hmm. And an example that, um, that came to my mind is, uh, is that we are conditioned by knowledge, uh, which, is, which is of the nature of the mind. Uh, knowledge as in, and, and that knowledge uh, also translates into other forms of conditioning like status and achievement and, uh, and purpose. And all like we, um, we get all these degrees and we, uh, we have these roles in society. And I think that is also a form of conditioning, which is which, which is built on top of our conditioning for things which our body finds um, preferable because it's linked to our neurobiology, as you said. And I think the, this second layer of conditioning kind of is built on top of that because this conditioning supports our neurobiology that if we, if we achieve, uh, if, we are, if we have a high status, if we have a lot of knowledge, then we are successful or we can survive better. And then it directly ties into our idea of, of, uh, of, of wanting a life and avoiding death. Um, so I just wanted to make that comment. Uh, and then the question I wanted to ask is that, that um, it's, it's thank you for mentioning the, the preference that we have as soon as we are born for our mother because it kind of supports our life and our neurobiology is conditioned for that. Uh, and then I have been spending time uh, with the Diamond Sutra and I kind of keep getting pulled by it. And one of the things that uh, is said by the Buddha in the Diamond Sutra is to develop a mind which is not affected by the senses or develop a mind which is not affected by the sounds and the tastes and the sights and, um, and all, all, all of these senses. And while saying that uh, the Buddha does not say that not account for these things because they have their intrinsic value, but be not attached to those things. And so while, uh, it, while all of this makes sense as it like developing a mind which is not not affected by the senses would lead us to a non-attachment, but, but how is one to do that? How, how do you even think about it? Or how do you develop a mind which is, um, which is not uh, related to the senses? So 
that is my question. I would like to check that sutra <laughs> because I wonder if the if the word affected is uh, I think it's for me. I'll just talk about myself and and my teachers what my teachers taught me which is uh you know the point of our practice is not to develop a mind that is not affected but to develop a mind that is not dragged around by the by our uh sensory experience that instead can be a compassionate observer of our experience and can, um, you know, hold and and um, shepherd our our understanding. So it's not because when we get dragged around by our senses, then we lean too much one way or the other. We avoid one at great cost to our to our real um, whole understanding of of the human experience to intimacy with the whole of our humanity. And um, so I wouldn't um, advocate uh, even not being attached or not allowing attachment, but instead to develop wholesome capacities that allow me not to be dragged around by compassion, I mean, by, um, by attachment. Doesn't mean that if, you know, when, when India went into war, Buddha wept, right? I mean, he, he had some compassion, some, some attachment to peace in that. And he suffered for that. But I mean, he, he wept. I don't know if that's suffering, maybe, maybe not. But, you know, he felt sadness, which is natural. And, and he let it pass through his body, which is what we, what we do. Um, he didn't hold on to it and become a sad person and, you know, drag it through every aspect of life. He just observed it, was in it, experienced it, expressed it, and went, moved to the next thing. <laughs> so I think that's how, that's how we do that. That's how we develop that capacity uh, to, um, to, uh, uh, work skillfully with what is ours to work with, which is neurological, which is, which does attach, co-wires, it, it has mirror neurology, all these things, which you guys probably undoubtedly know a lot more about than I do, but, um, you know, understand it more intricately than I do, but I'm very aware of it because it's played such a large role in my own life and affected me so greatly. Darlene Cohen said, you know, sit up and, and because if you're constantly ducking, you, you can't absorb what life extends you, what life brings you. So it isn't to duck down and sort of not be there to receive it, but to receive it fully and be a willing observer, be a willing, be willingly affected. And, 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 and yet not being dragged here and there by everything that, that we are affected by. So that's how, it's probably not an answer to your question. <laughs> yes, so my follow-up would be- ordering there. 
yeah, my follow-up would be how to do that. Um, <laughs> By um, going back to the self, back to the body over and over. Because the body is the, is the house. So we learn in Zazen to return to the body. Just return to the body. doesn't have to be understood or explained. Just build the returning muscle over and over the returning muscle. And that strong returning muscle is that is the teacher right here. Thank you. With all its, with all its um, pain in the butts. You know? <laughs> Suzuki said, you pick up a speck of dust, you have a problem, right? You have problems. So it's, you know, in spite of its problems, this speck of dust is also the source. And much faster than the mind, by the way, at perceiving and translating. I, I, I guess, I guess, uh, so, sorry for asking again. What, like we just, uh, like we discussed in the talk that um, we practice to set aside mind and body, which I think is similar to the idea of having a mind free from uh, mind and body, or as you said, not be dragged around by uh, the the sights and sounds and the happenings and the experiences. And so, what I'm trying to understand is. What does it mean to set aside mind and body? Thank you, and I'll, I'll stop now, thanks. Thank you, and, that, and that's a, a wonderful, wonderful place of practice right there. What does that mean? Um, and I really strong, I just can't encourage you enough to sit with that question. It's a beautiful and deep well, and probably not something that someone else can really answer for you. Thank what a you. pop out, I know. But thank you very much. Chris? Hello, Biana. Hi, Chris. It's good to see you. Me too. Um, well, my, um, you may have already answered this <laughs> just now. Um, but as I, I'm remembering what my teacher said about this topic, if, I, if my memory serves is that uh, the, the um, obstacle isn't in your preferences. Uh, your preferences are your preferences. And I interpreted that as you should just accept those as what they are. Uh, the problem is and becomes uh, with, with regard to practice is your attachment to those preferences, um, which to me means that it's the difference of being just kind of lost in identify, identification with those preferences as being you, as uh, um, as opposed to uh, kind of standing back and just kind of observing them and being aware of them. And that kind of loosens the hold they have on you. Right. To, to some extent. Hey, when you were reading those, um, uh, during those readings, it sounded like it might have been contradictory to that, but I wasn't quite sure. Um, and what you just said kind of clarified that to some degree. But I just thought I'd ask anyway and see if you could comment further on that. Well, one of the things I really noticed, thank you, Chris, about my teacher, Darlene, is that Darlene was a woman of preference. She had many, many, many preferences. And she knew them and she asserted them 
and she was not afraid to prefer out in public uh, <laughs> as a, a brown robe priest, you know, she had no problem with preference. And yet when her preference was not met, here's how she was. <laughs> Just slid right off like it would, not that it was never there, but that's how much she held on to it. It was not her, it was her preference. And she put it right out there. And then unmet, gone. And that's, that's a healthy relationship. That's not preference as Beata, live or die, if I have this or don't. That's where it becomes, when it becomes me, when I grab it and identify it and build stories around it and how, you know, this or that, and you've got to have it. It's what makes me, me. Then I've solidified something that is not solid. And the Diamond Sutra at the very end, it says like a bubble in a stream. Like bubbles in a stream. That's what I am, actually. Uh, not at all solid. So I think if you hold preference lightly like that and, and just without, you know, <laughs> then it's very fun and, and makes humans interesting. And I mean, people loved Darlene for her preferences. I mean, every time she brought up chocolate chip cookies, stacks of chocolate chip cookies, with, you know, and then she would say, I don't want more chocolate chip cookies. Like you would watch your preferences, you know, <laughs> change. I, I think there was a supply preference relationship for us. <laughs> you know, it, it changed her, her, the supply changed her preferences. <laughs> but holding them loosely, then it becomes part of the human experience. And it's actually sort of a way to play in the Dharma field to express preferences and see what happens when you don't get your preference. And when you do get your preference, but it's not who you are. That's the, so I think she was, I think John was exactly right. Um, and you're exactly right with that. <laughs> Thank, Thank you. you. Yada, I, I have a, a, a good friend who <clears throat> uh, recently, he said he could remember being in the womb before his birth and hearing his mother yell and um, wondering, I might be making a mistake here. His mother was a yeller at her, all her kids and he was the youngest and he was hearing her yell from the womb and had second thoughts, but he was <laughs> glad to have her as a mom. That's choice, huh? <laughs> yeah. Anyway, Susan Toba has a question. Thank you so much. And boy, what a segue, Doug. I, <laughs> I, I, uh, I have to step in here um, because I, my whole, my, you know, I spent a, a full profession in, in the perinatal year. I worked with pregnancy and birth. And so for you to say, you know, that birth itself has its own past and future. Yeah. Of course, it brings up all the neurobiology factoids, which we can discuss or not. But what I really wanted to ask about, what, what, what comes after, you know, now being a grandparent and all that, after working with uh, hundreds and hundreds of families, is this glorious expression of culture of, of race, of being who they are as families. So this, this unborn child 
already has the music, has the cadence, perhaps has the flavors of the food, has all of that going on. And we know I've been at lots of births and, and um, very often the first thing the baby will attend to is the father's voice or, or the, the voice that it's heard most directly whoever's been speaking most directly uh, below mother's sounds because um, the placental swish will block the mother's voice. So, uh, so yes, in, uh, you, you describe well that first hour and all of, of what goes on when it's permitted, when it's not stifled by modern medicine and so forth. Um, but I, I want to bring in uh, some of the new research, you know, on trauma. We now have, in fact, speaking of race, uh, uh, a pediatrician, she rose up um, quickly uh, and strongly represented women of color. Uh, she herself, a Black woman who was seeing this uh, terrible disproportion of Black women dying, losing their babies and so forth. Um, she uh, coined the word ACE, which has to do with trauma. Right. And now has a scale, uh, has a way to assess trauma um, in newborns and uh, developing children. So I want to briefly, briefly, this, this um, idea of, of that perinatal year. So when you talk about that first hour and we look at the bonding that must occur for safety and for whole whole being. Um, and then we look at all of the influences that are, that are hopefully given to that child so that the mother is not stepping back and watching out for preferences. So the family is inundating that child with sensory experience of their culture yeah. in their lives. And then we see by nine months, that's typically uh, neurologically when the baby wants to wean itself. By 12 months, the baby wants to get up and walk away. So in those three months of weaning, crawling, standing, walking, that's individuation. And that's gonna go on our whole lives. So I was so excited to hear you talk about climbing over the mountain, okay? That little kid is climbing over the back of the couch, right? And can then actually get some training in looking at preferences if we have some savvy parenting going on. I just, that's so new for me to look at how do we help ourselves, even at that age, yes. to distinguish our being from yes. our preferences. Yes, yeah, beautiful. Yeah. And hold the preferences more. I'd love, yeah, I'd love your ideas about that as we look at of the, as at the child and as the as the young adult as the as the disruptive adolescent and teenager and you know how do we guide that process with this understanding? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that question. Thank you so much. You. <laughs> That's beautiful. Mm -hmm. Yes, I think this teaching that birth itself has its own is its own phase of life with its own past, its own present, its own future. Mm. I think that's very, um, that's a wide field to study parenting within and all of our practices around childbirth and prenatal care and how it, how it differs. And, and what you said about, you know, children are born knowing the sounds of their 
of their people, their tribe, you know, uh, and, 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 of, and of course, that makes perfect sense. And all of that is formative before there is even birth. That's all the, the, the you know, sort of history, <laughs> uh, its own history. Um, so, yeah, it really opens things up, doesn't it? I, I studied child development. My first master's is in developmental. So I love, mm. I love this, but I am not a parent. So I feel very hindered in my ability to speak about it. But I uh, just intellectually, I find it profound, just profound. Um, and, um, and my own trauma history gives me a, 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 an understanding of, of kind of, you know, how lifelong the effects of early experience are and uh, how little the culture, the culture uh, pays to that, doesn't give it its due at all. Um, so anyway, um, thank you. And I would love to talk and hear more about that. Okay. It's a lot there. Thank you very much. Hi. Um, there's so much talk of uh, babies and birth. I, uh, could you say something about uh, Bonke's unborn teaching? and the relation between that and what you've talked about. Between whose teaching? Zen Master Bonke, the unborn. Oh, Bonke. Yes, well, I mean, you know, um, closer, a little bit closer to our lineage is the Master Hawkwind, who, uh, who said, you know, uh, uh, in, you know, when we're, when we're just open, you know, great livingness springs forth. He talks about the cat leaping and you know great livingness springing forth, and that's the unborn. Uh, that is Bonke's unborn nature, which he then talks about and writes about in in really stunning ways um, that are are almost ungraspable. I think I love his work. Yeah, he's a little bit of a renegade, I, uh, but uh, but I, for that reason, I love his work, and I I, I think. I wish I could, I wish I had it fresh on my mind so I could quote him to you and look really super smart. But instead, I, I just have to express my appreciation. And, and uh, yes, this, the, when we're talking about conditioning, we're talking about how to, how to be a, a human in the five skandhas, uh, sort of subject to the five skandhas to conditioning even of consciousness and and by being intimate with that being able to see behind it or in some way before it which would be the unknown so before the arising of conditioning that's where what we get to see in Zazen is, is so you see this all happening, all this wanting, and I want that chocolate shake, and I want it now, you know, and then noticing what happens if I don't, if I just watch this wanting play. And then from that, we, be, we can see the unborn nature of that wish, that preference, that desire in this moment, and what is maybe conditioning what appears to be unborn. So unborn would be before condition. And it's a, it's a tough thing to notice. Yeah. 
or a challenging thing to notice. But when we can notice it, we go, oh, and we know it's it's real. We know it's it, it, it's part of us, it's not separate from us. I think nature is a, the best resource I have for that. Just sitting and noticing what's ha what happens, whatever it is, whatever arises, um, and just being present with it. And there's always great living springing forth, this unborn nature of reality. Thank you very much. Anything else on your minds? How lovely to be with you. You ask such interesting and compelling questions. I could spend all day uh, doing Dharma dialogue with you. Could we have one more question? Sure, uh, of course. Okay, Pamela. Hi, Beata. Hi, Pamela. Um, I really appreciate this discussion about attachment because I think often I encounter people who think that the point of our practice is to be rid of attachment and, and that somehow rising above all attachment is the solution. Mm -hmm. And I experience my life through the skandhas, right? Through my perceptions and feelings and emotions and desires and my thoughts. And I think that they are inseparable from Buddha nature. That is me manifesting. And I also think I'm not gonna free myself from all these attachments, especially in terms of people that I want to be vulnerable and have attachments. It's part of how I expand beyond this person to be vulnerable. And I don't think there's a way to escape that suffering. I think maybe that's the hard part of the Buddha's first truth, You know, that we still think at some level that we could really escape it but we can't ever escape suffering, that we are gonna be emotionally vulnerable. I'm not gonna create a perfect little world where I'm not attached and not vulnerable. And then I'm gonna live in the midst of all of that mess because that's this life. That's at least that's this life. And I, I think that the experience I have through Zazen is that um, sometimes, I can have all my attachments and my preferences and have kind of an, an indifferent reaction to my preferences and attachments, like um, and kind of a benign mm -hmm. acceptance, I guess, that, oh, there, that's me too, <laughs> and that's me too. So I'm just trying to say that I, I don't think we should, did, you didn't do this, but I, I hear it, this idea that you know, not having attachments is the ideal and that that's the way to rise above everything. I don't think that is how we are as people, as humans. Mm -hmm. So I really appreciate the conversation. Of course, as usual, love the Darlene story. And I think I'm gonna try that practice in the ice cream store when we get to go back to ice cream. <laughs> and I'll tell you, I'll give you a survey to see whether or not it always is orange sherbet because yeah. I don't think it's not about her selection. I think it's I'm trying to get rid of the orange sherbet. <laughs> Just walk in and say, I'll take anything but orange sherbet. That's what, um, <laughs> you yeah. the right hand sometimes instead of left hand or the other way around? Yeah, yeah. Maybe the orange sherbet was always in the, in the same place. Exactly. I mean, it's, you never know. But yes, exactly. 
<laughs> she was a hilarious person and just this was part of her her fun self was going to be and I saw her do it I mean it wasn't unreal she did it it was funny um, and she played with the clerk and it was very very sweet and something they knew that she did and so it was great um, so yeah I mean Suzuki Roshi said something very plain about what you talked about Pamela he said uh, you should learn to enjoy your suffering. That that's really the task. That's really the effortless effort, is to learn to enjoy our suffering. That doesn't mean that we have to love it. It's not about how we feel about it. It's about how we relate to it, how we interact with it. And learning to enjoy our suffering comes from a a sort of more of an observer location than from maybe the sufferer location, if that makes sense. The Dharma position of the neutral or compassionate observer um, and more than the Dharma position of the sufferer. But um, what is it that, that I heard a quote that uh, suffering is viewing uh, the world from the standpoint of samsara, you know, and uh, nirvana is looking at the world from the, or, or um, awakening is looking at the world from the viewpoint of nirvana. And that's what Dogen says in here. You know, it's already here. It's already nirvana. So we, we don't create a world that's free of everything. The world is free. Hmm. And now how do I meet the world that is free? How do I free myself to, to allow the free world to come here and be experienced, experience itself? That's really what we're after in practice. It's got nothing to do with attachment, except that attachment can be a hindrance if we get caught by it, like anything else, um, including pleasure, pain, you know, suffering, joy, it, it can all become a, a poison and it can all be medicine. So it's about this one showing up and meeting it sometimes skillfully and sometimes not, but always learning maybe, or mm, tr just putting some kind of uh, awareness into being awake to what is, I don't know what else can be done. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what I try to do. Thank you very much, both of you. Thank you. Questions and comments. So everyone, go out and enjoy your suffering today. <laughs> um, I'm going to stay around for a little bit uh, while some other Jacogians go to lunch that Mike has made. Oh, nice. So... Uh, Keep some follow-up discussions. Can you stay a little bit longer, Beata? Sure. You have some people have some other follow-up. <clears throat> so, so Beata, one of the uh, points you made was about uh, I, today when you spoke about body and mind, it, and then you tossed in. 
you know, about the preferences are already here, you know, they're on our body. And usually when I think about body and mind, it's like, oh yeah, it's just heart and lungs and, you know, this body mass, the brain structure and the mind that's working around it. But the, the conditioning is in this body, isn't it? It's, it's in the body. And, and so to cast out, to, to throw out body and mind is, uh, yeah, it feels different than how I've heard it before. So thank you. Yeah, I mean, notice how when something happens, you feel it in your chest or in your gut or, or you know, that's, that's, that's actually where the recording is happening. The mind forgets 90% of our experience, but the body remembers it all. Body records. So uh, it's a stunning realization that, and also for every, like, what is it? What is it? For every seven uh, pieces of stimuli that the mind picks up, the body has recorded. For every one that the mind picks, the brain picks up, the body has recorded seven. The body is much faster. It's actually been quantified through uh, functional MRI that the body records at like something like, you know, 150 miles an hour, you know, and the, and the mind records at like 30 miles an hour, something, probably slower. It's stunning how much longer it takes. So, and of course, what that shows us, what that teaches us is that they're not separate. That the mind is part of the body, it's, it's interacting with the body, it's in constant relationship, completely not separate from the mind. Body and the mind, body mind, one word. In Japanese, there's only one word and one kanji for body and mind because they're one thing. I work with people with pain and I can tell you from my experience with them, one thing, I don't know anybody who lives in chronic pain who doesn't also experience grief and sadness and emotional anguish, mental anguish, not one. And nor do I know one with mental anguish who doesn't have some expression in the physical body. They are one, they fly together. And they co-express together. Hogan? Um, yeah, I'd like to offer the, you know, I think earlier in your talk, Beata, you mentioned how um, our neurology um, involuntarily um, mirrors and picks up on the neurology of those around us, yeah. of course, especially the ones that we're intimately connected with. So drawing a distinction between whether or not, you know, you, your body carries your conditioning. Doug's body carries my conditioning now too. As I move around and live with Doug and move around the world and interact with other human beings whose bodies have experienced causes and conditions that led to their conditioning, that is mine as well. Um, and it's me. Yeah, I think it, that's been helpful for me to develop a deeper compassion for um, for for this business <laughs> yeah one body mind 
Yeah, one body mind. The Dogen, Dogen said the great earth, and, or the Buddha said the great earth and all beings simultaneously. How does that work? You know, it's the inconceivable. It's beyond words. But that's the teaching. Yeah, a real seeming, it seems related also uh, a teaching that, uh, that I heard here quite uh, not too long ago. Um, I think it was Shoho Kubast was giving a talk and she suggested a practice in which um, when she notices that she is maybe aware of a tree, um, she does a, a shift and practices noticing the space itself between the, her concept of her and her concept of the tree. What is, what is there between? And, and that is what I'm going to bring my mind to. And that kind of practice leads one to develop a capacity to be aware of that which is undisturbed by the suffering that maybe you know my my conscious mind is going through you know what is the field in which this all can take place there is something to that it's always present and it's unchanging um and to sit still and you know not be dragged dragged along by my own preferences but to sit still see them happening and realize that they're happening within something that is undisturbed and that can be very reassuring and very uh, a very unify uh, something that leaves my intuition and my heart to feeling unity um so that's that's what arose just then yes and and, and an extension of that is when we sit together we don't have to know each other but we will indeed fall in love mm. because yeah. we will sit together and breathe and we will re regulate one another. We will not know what is you and what is me in some way, right? <laughs> Until we stand up and start cooking or cleaning or do going to things, talking, you know, all the ways that yeah. we suddenly are separate. But in the Zendo, you know, you can hate everybody on Friday night and why are they all such idiots? And by Sunday, they all had brain transplants. That's because you, your neurology, <laughs> has been in there regulating with all of them. And now you love them. You can't, you don't, you don't want to leave such a that you fought three days to settle into, right? And wanted to leave the whole three days. <laughs> it's powerful. And we get to just directly experience that in our, in our practice. So rare, so rare, I think beautiful and and that's what you're describing in greater detail than i can bring because you have a better understanding of it but that's the, that's what you feel in the zendo on day three <laughs> or day four ah we're all one mind which is what sashin means you know we're all sinking together here one mind one body karen you you were uh about to say some, weren't you? Yeah. Um, oh, just. Oh, Corin, uh, Corin, Corin, Corin. Sorry. Oh, oh, okay, sorry. K A R I. Oh, no, that's either. There's a Karin and there's a Karin. That's crazy. Oh, oh wow. <laughs> I, I see. don't know. Who were you calling to speak? <laughs>
Uh, you. Oh, okay, okay. Uh, thank you, darling. Uh, uh, sorry. One by Beyond, I wanted to thank you for your talk, and I also wanted to thank you for bringing the stories of Darlene out. Um, and um, Angie, Angie also talks about Darlene and oh. her preference for bright colors. Oh yeah. Not the Zen black, you know, really uh, kind of a rebel in this. I wish I could have met this teacher. She sounds like, like a great character. Um, and I, and I also want to ask you about just <clears throat> your, since you know and, and speak so well to this emotional, this, this, yeah. um, my dog, <laughs> your dog too. My dog, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, <clears throat> just the motions in the body and, um, and uh, you working with people with chronic pain. And I'm just wondering, you know, almost like how do you how do you end up in a practice like zen which is this absolute still um practice or for myself i should say i'm always wondering how could i ever do zen without yoga and and then when we go to the sessions i'm feeling like well where is it that we you know we move this out because it's everything is like real um very slow and still <laughs> the whole time. And I'm just like, ah. <laughs> you know, like there's places that I need to move after sitting or, or anyway. So I'm just kind of curious, um, I don't know about that. <laughs> well, Zazen was very hard for me for many years because yeah. of my drama history and including my, um, you know, sort of uh, history with religious drama as well as, uh, you know, other types. So, so um, it, it, stillness brings up everything. Yeah. You know, against the still, you see what's moving. And, and so you, you see this crazy monkey mind that just wants to go everywhere and run around and do everything in a sense to maybe partly avoid what is in the stillness. And then when you move, from that stillness, you can see what is still within you and begin to build a relationship with that. Mm -hmm. And yes, in Sashin, we put our emphasis on the stillness. And the body does love to move. The body is built to move. There's, there's certainly no, uh, I, I don't see stillness and motion. I see this dog as kind of a better door than window, if you know what I mean. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> However, I don't see stillness and movement as um, exclusive of each other. I think they include each other. Yeah. And so when still, it doesn't mean board-like, you know, it, it has an element of movement. Mm -hmm. And we now, we know too that we can have, we can engage in movement and maintain a mind of stillness. And to me, that's the perfection of, mm -hmm. of our condition, that we, that we can include the wholeness of the experience of stillness and movement in, in the same moment, in the same activity, that they don't hinder each other. But yeah, you're probably not during Sashin going to go out for a heavy run or bike. You want to conserve energy and use, devote all your energy to turning the lamp inward. Mm -hmm. um, 
and so that's why the emphasis even in movement like i've participated in sessions that were yoga paired with yoga or were paired with qigong mm -hmm. or tai chi mm -hmm. um, and those kinds of movements are very consistent with the bringing the quiet mind to movement and actually can teach the body mind mm -hmm. how to act in a synchronized way with mm -hmm. both stillness and movement mm -hmm. i think stillness is much more challenging to the body mind than movement yeah yeah <laughs> so what you're observing i i feel too i feel that thank you so thank much you, Kathy, you have a, a, you had your hands up too. I'm going to excuse myself because we have science and Buddhism at one, but just keep going. Okay. okay. <laughs> well, thank you, Biata. Bye, everyone, and see some of you soon. Great to see you. I just, I just had a very um, flash of a, I don't know, an observ observation, which was, Back in the early 90s, I experienced chronic pain. And I did everything I could to make it go away and all of that. And I remember I read a book written by UCLA or somebody, something like that. And I remember one thing that I remember about it was the pain is not going to go away until you understand the meaning of the pain. And I found that very helpful. Um, and I don't know why, but I did find out the meaning of the pain and the pain did go away. <laughs> go figure. Sure. sure, yeah. Yeah, I think the mind and the body being one um, are intimately intertwined meaning how we put meaning on events in the body how we tend to separate and override the body with the mind how we use the mind to to uh, keep going and all of that that we do culturally and and so stepping back and just entering deeply into the intimacy between them and meaning is intimacy between body and mind um then, then it, they can resolve. And uh, so I would agree with that, except that I think that there is pain that will not go away if you understand its meaning. But I think a great deal more pain than we imagine would go away if we, if, if we uh, became intimate with it. You know, another thing that um, people who work in chronic pain management talk about is there's a difference between pain and suffering. Oh, sure, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. But if you have pain every day, you're going to suffer. I don't, I don't think it's escapable. I, I, I'm sorry. I, 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 I see, I, I get that distinction completely uh, that you can have pain and not suffer. And I agree with that. But, but if you have pain. up every morning with pain that will never go away, that is taking away your livelihood and your relationships and your friendships and your you know ability to sit upright and your ability I mean you know pretty soon you're going to suffer if you're human I don't I don't know that it's completely escapable but there have been times when I've been able to 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 accompany my pain in such a way that it becomes ecstatic 
So pain has many faces. And I just, I think we can border on blaming the victim when we give simple, you know, sort of reduced um, explanations because it might not fit everyone. And people who live with pain that is invisible, that with uh, very disabling conditions that they get up every morning and work and, and meet you and you would never know it. Um, I have a lot of heart for them and I never want to imply that somehow, you know, they don't understand it well enough or they, they aren't, you know, aren't able to overcome it in some way. I think it's real there. And we, we want to learn how to work with that, how to do the dance with this pain. And it does change. It does change when we learn to dance with it instead of running from it. it takes on some different characters. Thank you so much for bringing that up. It's a beautiful. Appreciate it very much. And I'm glad your pain changed so favorably. How wonderful. I, uh, I, I want to... Um, Angie... Um, Angie, one of our teachers. I mean, yes, I love Angie. I know. Yeah, Angie. Kathy's yeah. teacher, my teacher, Karen's teacher. Yeah. Maybe many people's teacher here. Uh, several times she's given an instruction for Zazen in which she says, when you sit, you don't change your mind. Like, um, I wish she was here to say it, but I, I, I would recollect what I remember from it, and they can they can correct me if I misspeak it. Uh, you know, you don't change your mind. You just see that your mind is a thought machine. Just its job is to spirit out thoughts. And at the same time that you're sitting, you feel your heartbeat. You see your lung. You 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 feel your breathing. Uh, you hear the sounds outside. You feel your leg pain you see that the universe is sitting with you. And that kind of like restores, I mean, she didn't say that part, but the way I understand that is that kind of restores the proper role of the mind within the context of everything that's going on. That's right. So it's not a central command structure. That's and right. So it's not like something that you can overcome your mind to go into thoughtlessness or something like that because right. its job is to produce thoughts it's how you relate to the thoughts she's telling us that's right that's, so that's, that's her teaching that i learned you know that i learned from it yeah yes that's exactly right okay. you know the brain secretes thought that's what it does the, the pancreas secretes enzymes the the gallbladder secretes bile the brain secretes thoughts you don't sit and expect your gallbladder to stop secreting bile in order to sit better. <laughs> I don't know, it might help, but we don't do that. We, but yet we expect our brain to stop secreting thoughts, to stop having thought. And the important thing, and I'll say it in a, and Angie would appreciate this because she knows me, I'll say it in a harsher way than Angie would because she's so beautiful and loving beautiful. and yeah. perfect in every way. But uh Angie is the person who said to me when I was in the throes of practicing with pain, she said, Beata, your needs are not special. <laughs> Which is exactly what Dogen says when he says, throw, your, throw it into the Buddha 
into the Buddha's hall. Your pain is not special. Just throw it into the Buddha's hall. Darlene said, throw your body on the Sangha. Same thing, same teaching, right? Um, so, yeah, I don't know where I was going, but that's, that's what really came up strongest for me. Is it, and, um, oh, I was going to say, um, I gave a talk on this very topic one time, and there was a physicist there. And I loved what he said. He said, 99% of what the brain produces is garbage. However, we can't ignore the 99% because the 1% is gold. We depend on it. Our lives depend on it. Our people depend on it. Our world depends on it. We need that 1%. And the 99% is the compost of the 1%. So it's not bad. It's just shit. It's just manure. It's bandini, right? It's just, it's just there to grow the one. And, and, and so knowing that process is, is what we are becoming intimate with in Zazen. And if we hold on to all that manure as if it was me and important and have to have it, then we get mixed up. We get it turned around. And we start thinking that the 99% is what's important and relating to it as if it's the important part. And I, and I think that's something like Angie's teaching and something like the Buddha's teaching, only from the mind of a physicist, <laughs> you know, in our world, uh, current reality. I thought it was perfect. Exactly right. We get attached to the 99% <laughs> and we think it's us. A, it's not us, and B, it's not the most important stuff brains produce. Both are true. There's a wonderful little book out by an author I love, um, Faderman. She's or Fatterman. She's a uh, neuropsychologist. She's world-renowned neuropsychologist. And this book is called Seven and a Half Lessons About the Brain. Guess what the half lesson is? The brain is not made for thinking. So just take that in. It's a it's a beautiful book. I highly recommend it. It's that explains little, a lot. You explains a lot. Yeah, the little tiny book, and it packs a punch. And she's a great rebel in her field. And uh, she wrote the book How Emotions Are Made uh, several years ago, maybe five or six years ago, maybe more. And then this is her newest book, and it's it's great. I, I think I jumped the queue in front of Karen. Karen, I'm sorry. You had, you had a question a long time ago. You wanted to say something if you're still... I cut you off. I... Oh, oh, not at all, Gabe. Um, I, I just... I have been thinking about uh, Vieira's comment on sitting with... Um, sitting with and practicing setting aside mind and body. And it feels like the holy grail of Zen. So I... I don't know if there's any easy answer to it or a good question for it, but anything on that lines that we may discuss, that would be wonderful and interesting. I, I feel like I don't know where to start uh, when we think about setting aside mind and body because I, I have no conception of myself outside of my mind and outside of my body. Uh, 
other than this thought that there is such a thing as uh, practicing setting aside mind and body and i've heard uh, this the said by various zen masters about mind body drop off i think i've said, i've heard dogen talk about it and and he uses this um a uh, device of the mountain i don't know if it's dogen of somebody else initially there is a mountain there is no mountain then there is a mountain again uh, something on those lines um so i don't know like what what do you um you all think about um uh, uh practicing such that practicing or sitting with the idea of uh, setting aside mind and body I think um maybe it would be better said dropping off ideas of mind and body dropping off some idea of mind and body um and just being mind and body so when i think there's this mind and body and then there's this me then there's a problem but if there's only one thing and that is this whatever you whatever words you might put on it you know it, it uh this which is bigger than mind body yet completely mind body um just uh dropping off the idea of And then what does Dogen say right after that? If you read the fascicle, he talks, he goes to his teacher and he bows and says, I have dropped off body and mind. And his teacher asks him a couple questions. And at the end, he says, the teacher affirms him by saying, you have dropped off dropping off. <laughs> okay. Wait, what does that mean? Dropped off dropping off? I encourage you to think about that. to take that into your body. So I'm concerned about dropping off body and mind as the pinnacle of zen. The actual teaching is to drop off dropping off. Yes, yes, I I see Open that. Open the fist on the idea of dropping off anything at all. Just be as it is now. And there is no you to drop off anything then. Who is this you? that has to drop something off who is this dropper i guess that would be my question really if you think of it as an action dropping off who's this one that drops off oops did i lose you no i'm here oh, okay <laughs> i will dug me to noise that's what happened <laughs> i don't um I don't can't think if you can't can't I was thinking more he's going to come back with a question. Yeah was, yeah it's okay. I mean it it's all just the question. That's that's all it is. Yeah. It was it was a wonderful Yeah. It was a wonderful question and um and I guess um and I guess like yeah it's I don't have any more questions. Um, yeah. Just that who is this one? that imagines that there's something to drop off 
that's the one to to drop off that's the one to let go of that it is that one is nothing solid it's just the bubbles in the stream as the diamond sutra says it can't drop off anything it's not it's ephemeral it's not solid and realizing that is a complete dropping away of body and mind there is no one to have a body and mind and yet here is this body and mind so how do we do that Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I, I asked the same exact question as Colin from Angie. Uh, I wish I remember the exact answer, but it was, I think it was something you can, you can, you know, you could, you could comment on it, please. Uh, she said, uh, dropping off body and mind is dropping off your concern with dropping off body and mind. Uh, something, something, something. Yeah. Uh, also, I think she implied in the context I was asking her to drop off your self-concern repeatedly. Mm -hmm. This mm -hmm. I that I produce that I need to defend. Yes, self-cleaning. Offended. Yeah. You know, uh, all those things. Yeah. Drop off this, that body and mind. Yeah. 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 That's and right. the, the, the other one that you said is very beautiful because my old Dharma sister who got Chukai at the same time as me, uh, her name, Dharma name is Moving Stillness. Oh, beautiful. She was, she was, a, she was a, a ballet dancer. Oh. And wow. she had a lot of trauma, uh, a lot of trauma in her family. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. Like violence and stuff. Yeah. But, you know, she had a lot of stillness and our teacher gave Kwang Roshi gave her that name, moving stillness. Beautiful. And being, <laughs> when she got that name, we all felt it. Yeah. Like, that's it. Moving stillness. Beautiful. Okay. In the middle of all the trauma, there's this stillness. Powerful. Thank you. Good. Well, sounds like a, a good session. Really good session today. Thank you, Yada. Really, really fun. Thank you all so much. And Kave, Daryl, Susan for being here. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you, my teacher. Thank you very much. Thank you. Good dog. Thank you, Viara. Welcome. All right. Till next. Take care, everyone. Thank you for listening to this podcast offered by Jokoji Zen Center. Our Dharma talks are offered free of charge, and this is made possible by the donations we receive. Your support helps us to continue to offer the Dharma. For more information about Jokoji, please visit us on the web at jikoji.org.